love you. I know. Emma, these past seven months have been... notes. I love it. They got little notebooks and everything. I want to just encourage you as we get going today to take some notes. There are some things that God has laid on my heart and uh, allowed me to come into some, some resources and some reading and some different material that I think he really wants us to, to engage with today. But as we get, as we get going, uh, we've been in a series called Progressive Revelation. Of course, we've been going through some of the names of God as he reveals himself in the Old Testament and then as it goes on. And then as we, we talked about moving into the New Testament. So one of the things we're seeing is that God really wants us to know him as he really is, right? How many of you grew up in the church? Raise your hand. How many of you grew up in church? Okay. How many of you got saved at least 500 times? Anybody? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, and, you know, it seemed like, I remember specifically as I was a little bit preteen, you know, I was, I was 10, 11 years old, and I remember being in a church, and I don't know what I was doing that was so bad and, and when I was 10 years old, <laughs> but every Sunday night when we had church, I would, the guy would give an altar call of some kind to get, get right with God and give your life to Christ, man. Oh, you know, I'd, I'd be right there at the altar getting saved again and again and again. And then I would go out and do my, my fifth grade, you know, or my 10-year-old thing. I have no idea what I was doing that was so bad. But I remember feeling this kind of perpetual sense of not being good enough and a perpetual sense that God kind of was just putting up with me. He didn't really like me. Did anybody ever have this experience? You know, like, like there's this sense that, that God loves other people more than he loves me. And I would read about the love of God, but I would be, you know, it's kind of depressing, really. And then as I got older, of course, I learned a little bit more about God. But, but, you know, it's easy to fall into in church this sense that God is kind of grumpy, you know, or that he's not really happy with us and that we have to keep trying to earn him you know, like if I had a really good week and I didn't sin, you know, then God would be satisfied with me. He would like me, you know. But I want to tell you today that that is not really who God is. Right? And I believe that it's the church's responsibility to represent God as he really is to our world. But how many of you know that we can't represent God as he really is to our world if we haven't experienced God as he really is, right? I think we would all agree this morning that the world around us, our culture, really needs to see a different God than what a lot of them are experiencing. Would you agree? Like if you talk about God with people, and even in media and different things, you'll find that, you know, that God is, it's almost a caricature of God. Like sometimes people see, you know, this doddering old fool of a God. Like, you know, you've seen these pictures of him on the throne and he's sitting there and he's got a big long beard or something. And he's just like this, this God who's just kind of clueless, this old kind of foolish God, right? Or, or he's a, or another people look at him as he's just powerless, you know? 
We, we come out of these hurricanes and some of these disasters, and even this week again, the shootings and all this horrible stuff that's happening in our world, and we just think, you know, a lot of people are wondering, where's God? I even heard some people in the media saying, well, how could God allow this and, you know, th- this whole thing, and we won't get into all of that this morning. But, but there's a sense that people and their view of God is that God, uh, you know, allows shootings and stuff like that, or that God is maybe somehow behind the hurricanes and the tornadoes that destroy people's lives. I want to tell you today that that is not God. God is not wanting people to get shot with guns. He is not wanting people's houses to be destroyed and their lives turned upside down through hurricanes and tornadoes. That's, that's not his heart. That's not who God is, right? And sometimes we, we see God almost as this vindictive, angry God, you know? How many of you think it's time we try to flip that thing around, Amen. So part of this series that we're doing with the progressive revelation of God is this God that we see being progressively revealed through scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We're actually going <laughs> to we're going to make a big jump today with that. We're going to go from early in the Old Testament to way far in the New Testament. And we're going to see that there is a God that loves us very very much. And again, we've talked so much about God doesn't want a partial revelation of who he is. Because a lot of people do that. They'll, they'll get moving with God, and then they just get stuck. You know? And how they experience God, and how they've always experienced God, and they kind of get stuck. And I will tell you today, if you're stuck in your revelation of God, and, and I'll, I'll, this is how you know, is he revealing, are you experiencing him in new and fresh ways every week? Because if you're not, you're stuck. The Bible actually says this, that we're going to be with God all the way through eternity. Everybody say eternity. Now, eternity doesn't end, and I know it's hard for us to put our brain about this, but do you realize that we're going to be, God's going to be revealing more and more of who he is forever. (laughs) So if, right, if we're stuck in something, that's not God. He doesn't want you to be stuck. He wants to release you today. So part of receiving some things from God, I believe this morning, is saying, God, reveal a little bit more of your love and your heart towards me. And we're going to walk through a couple things. We've talked about God being Elohim God. And then we started talking a little bit about the covenant-making God in the, in the Old Testament. But before we do that, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. Ephesians 1, 17, Paul is writing to the church, and he, again, he says that he never ceases praying for this church in this one area. Are you ready? Never ceases praying. In other words, he wants them to keep getting more and more. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit, everybody say spirit, of wisdom and revelation in the true knowledge of God. Do you you hear what he's saying? He says, I never stop praying for you guys that you would have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation into the true knowledge of God. That there's more and more and more. And he says, I'm praying that you'll just keep having wave after wave of his goodness and his love and who he really is. When we talk about a covenant-making God, we talk about a God who, who says this, I am committed to you fully, right? I am committed to you fully. (laughs) 
When I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I had a hard time imagining that. Because I didn't think God was committed to me fully. I thought God was only committed to me when I was at the altar getting saved again. <laughs> you know? But I want to tell you something. God doesn't forget his commitment to you and I. And, and, and no matter what I do, it doesn't change how he, what he thinks about me. Everybody go, mind blown, right? <laughs> like, we have had this thought in our mind that somehow I dictate how much, you know, of God. No, he's God. He loves you. He's committed to you. He's made a covenant with you and I, and he will never back up from that. It's huh. pretty awesome. And so as we move into the New Testament, the New Covenant, you know, we find the first covenant was made with Abraham, and God made a promise to him that he said, Abe, your people are going to be my people. And out of that, the whole world is going to be blessed. And that's where we sit. See, we're actually a part of that old Abrahamic, they call it covenant, right? But we get into the New Testament, and we find that the covenant, Jesus actually says this new covenant in my blood. He's, he moves it into a new level. And we find that the covenant becomes not only new, but a revelation of it being that we are the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. I mean, you know, when somebody gets married, they make a vow, they make a covenant with each other, right? And they say this word and this word, and they come together and they have a, this covenant. And so God takes that picture, and we find it through a lot of Scripture. We're going to look at some today. And we find this, this, this covenant that God says, listen, church... You're my bride, and Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom. Ephesians 5, verse 25 to 27. And again, I encourage you to take some notes today uh, that God really wants to, to uh, speak to you. And, and maybe you can take them with you as you go from this place. But Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, it says, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, just as Christ also loved the church... Turn to the person next to you and say, we're the church. You and me, we're the church. <laughs> All right? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Can we say this together? We are the church. Can we say that together? We are the church. We are the bride of Christ, right? He's the bridegroom. We're the bride. And he begins to take this covenant idea and move it into a whole new thing that's a little bit easier to understand, isn't it? Like a few weeks ago, we talked about the covenant and they cut some animals in half and there was blood and God walked through the middle of these animals, you know. We're like, okay, that's cool, but I don't, I can't really relate to that, you know. Like I'm not a huge blood guy, you know, and I don't have a bunch of animals I'm going to kill. No, so that's hard to understand. But when we move into talking about a bride and a groom, now we're talking about language that we can understand a little better, can't we? Right? The bride, we're, the church is the bride of Christ. And uh, we got a couple of pictures I just want to throw up there for you. How many of you know that we're a bride, but we live in kind of a messed up world, right? I like this picture. Because he wants to make us holy and blameless, like it says in Ephesians, but we live in kind of a, a dirty world, right? The Bible says that we are his bride, that he is the, 
is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And these are just some pictures that, that I found, and some of them are a little different, you know. And, uh, you know, again, I don't know what it's all going to look like, but I do know this, that God in his word has set up this idea that we are the bride and he is the bridegroom. Now, this is for all the men out there. Like, men, we're, it's a little harder for men, right? Because <laughs> we got a longer ways to go, right? Like, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy, I'm the bridegroom, you know, I'm not supposed to be the bride, but so I will encourage you men, I'm going to walk you through some stuff today, but it's going to be, you know, it's a little more, um, what do we say, it's a little more abstract for us to think of ourselves as the bride, but I want to tell you that that's who we are, all right, and I just want to, that's just weird, get that picture off of there, would you? <laughs> all right, so so go with me to Revelation chapter 19. I told you we were going to go from the beginning to the end, and then we're actually going to go back and look at some things in the book of Exodus today. But in Revelation 19, which is the last book of the Bible, and we see some things get wrapped up and come to conclusion there. And uh, just pause there for a second. Uh, the Passion Translation, which is the translation we use a lot around here, I love it. He's just finished doing, uh, writing the book of Revelation and all of the, the stuff involved in that. It's really awesome. And it just came out. In fact, the whole Bible now is available with the, pa sorry, the whole New Testament is available with the Passion Translation in addition to Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon. And you can find it on BibleGateway.com. With all those other versions of the Bible, you can find the Passion Translation there, including the book of Revelation. So it's pretty exciting. I encourage you to, to look that up, BibleGateway.com, and it's the Passion Translation. But we find ourselves in Revelation 19, and again, it's a picture that, that, uh, that John is seeing a revelation, and it's the throne of God and the angels and the 24 elders and a massive army of angels and, and all the saved of all time are there. Can you imagine the crowd? This massive throng of people. And it says in verse 6, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. We thank you so much for what you're doing in our midst. We thank you so much, God, that, that you have more revelation to give. And there are deeper places in you. And there are more profound insights into your word and into our hearts and into our minds. So, Father, if we're stuck today, we purpose to be unstuck. We, we actually invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak into our minds and reveal yourself to us in ways we've never known before. And we say, do it now today. In Jesus' name. If that's your prayer. Say amen with me. Amen. So, We'll go back to the covenant-making situation at the very beginning. We find, again, Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. You can go and read it there. And he becomes, Abraham 
has this covenant with God, and God says, I've become your God, and I'm going to be the God to your family and your people and all the generations after you. So we find Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we find that God reveals himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. Everybody say, El Shaddai, God Almighty. All right, so that's the revelation that they've had at this point. And, and through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then all the, into Joseph, and then through a series of unfortunate circumstances, all of the clan of the Israelites end up in slavery in Egypt for 430 years. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's a long time to be in, in, in slavery. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the, the revelation that they've had of God up to that point was El Shaddai, God Almighty. How many you know that if you're in slavery for 430 years, that's not a good situation? And if your revelation of God is God Almighty, but you're in slavery, how many of you think there might be some trust issues <laughs> with God, right? But it's interesting because there, he's God Almighty. He's El Shaddai up to that point. And then God brings a guy named Moses on the scene. And Moses sees God in a burning bush, and God reveals himself as a whole different way, right? We had El Shaddai, then Yahweh, or Jehovah, the great I Am. And so we find God moving them from El Shaddai to Yahweh, and we see them moving into this developing relationship. How many of you know, though, that God isn't content with us, just a certain revelation. He wants more. And so we find as God delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, he brings them into the wilderness, and he wants to take their relationship to the next level. Anybody glad for that? <laughs> I want to tell you today, God wants to bring yours and my relationship to the next level, right? And I, I ran across some teaching from a gentleman by the name of Shane Willard. If you want to just write that name down, it's he writes, uh, he's, an, he's an American Pentecostal, but he, had, he was mentored under uh, a Pentecostal rabbi, <laughs> a Jewish rabbi. I thought, what a kind of cool combination. And he writes a lot how to understand the Bible and things from a Hebrew perspective. And so it really, you know, this is a Hebrew book originally, so to understand you know, what were the thinking and what were the people thinking as they heard the Word of God. And so his name is Shane Willard. And I just want to take you through the five steps to a Hebrew wedding. Five steps to a Hebrew wedding. If you're taking notes, we're going to just go five different things this morning. Number one, step number one, it was the word called lakah. Lakah, L-A-C-A-H. Lakah meant this, I want to make you mine. Okay? So let's pretend that you're in, a, in, a, in, a, in the beginning of a relationship, right? You see that person and you catch their eye, and they catch your eye, and that little thing inside, woo, the, you know, that little tingly stuff, and, you know, and you're thinking, whoa, you know. And then all of a sudden, you start to talk, and you realize that there's a connection. Anybody ever had this experience? Husbands and wives better say yes. Yes is good. Okay. Laka <laughs> is kind of the beginning of a relationship, and it, 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 it actually says the one person begins to look at the other person, and they say, I want to make you mine, right? So I remember when I was dating Jody, and there was a certain moment where in the beginning I began to think, okay, we're not just going on dates. I actually want her to stick around, right? And she started to feel, I want him to stick around. And it's this lakai, it's this beginning of the dating relationship where it says, I want to, I want to make you mine. I want us to be 
uh, exclusive and just the two of us, right? And so in Exodus chapter 6, Moses and God have brought the children out of Egypt, 10 plagues of Egypt and all of the, you know, the miracles and all that stuff. And now they're out into the wilderness. And, and God begins to say to the children of Israel, he says in Exodus chapter 6, he says, he told Moses to tell the people this. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. You see, remember, 430 years of slavery can probably have a little bit of impact on your mind and how you think. You know, for 430 years, God was just El Shaddai, the God Almighty, but it didn't feel like he really loved them very much because they were still in slavery, right? And now God shows up on the scene and he says, listen, I know where you've been, but I want you. And I always love that because aren't you glad God doesn't love us based on where we've been? <laughs> Not based on our past and the things that we're going on. Now God says to us today, and I believe he's saying to us right now this morning, Laka, I want to make you mine. I want to, it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've been through. I want to make you mine. And it's interesting because, of course, the, he says the Hebrew steps of marriage, and for 430 years they've been getting married. And so when they hear Laka, when they hear God say, I want to make you mine, I'm sure they looked at each other and went, are you serious? God wants to laka us? <laughs> he wants us to be his own? This is like a whole new thing for us. Is he serious? You know, I don't know how many times you've ever told someone in a romantic situation, I love you. But how many of you know that that first I love you, the person saying it, is taking the biggest risk. Would you agree? <laughs> so I want to show you this real quick. Some of you may remember this scene. <laughs> I love you. I know. Okay. <laughs> it's one of my favorite scenes in all of Star Wars. You know, like when you say I love you, how many of you want to hear the other person say, I love you? <laughs> like, if you say, I love you, and the other person says, isn't that nice? <laughs> That's special. <laughs> or, I know you, do, you, I know you love me. <laughs> you know, like, no, see, when we hear somebody say, I love you, they're taking the risk, and they're throwing something out there. And isn't it cool? God says to the children of Israel, he says, listen, I love you. I want to make you mine. I don't know if you remember the first time somebody ever said I love you to you. But I remember, man, my heart was spinning and my mind was spinning. And I was thinking again, you know, I've never felt this way before and I've never had anybody say this to me. Laka, I love you. I want to make you mine. Then the second step of the Hebrew on, on this romantic journey, if you will, the step two is called the segula. So let's say you're functioning in Laka for a while, and you're, you're mine, and I'm yours, and we're, you know, it's awesome. But I don't even know in a dating relationship, things need to move to the next level eventually. Otherwise, it just stops, right? So in this kind of relationship, the, the Segula was the next step. And this is the part where, you know, like if two, if, if, uh, if, a, if a young lady, and she had some friends, 
And they were like, I know you're like, ah, but has he segulaed you yet? <laughs> you know, has he got, is, where's Segula? You know, like if it was Facebook, they'd be texting away, has he segulaed yet? Like, you know, have we moved to the next level? And the Segula means this, treasured possession. It's taking Laka one step further that you're not just mine, and I'm not just yours, but you're actually a treasured possession, right? And there's a longing to move to the next level. It shows more commitment. So in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, we find God speaking to the, to the children of Israel. And he says, now if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. And again, you can almost imagine the children of Israel going, okay, we've known him as El Shaddai, then the Yahweh thing we're still working on. And then he lakad us, you know. He says he wants to be ours, but now he's Segula. <laughs> he wants to be, us to be his treasured possession. And you can almost imagine the children of Israel going, did, did he just say Segula to us? And you can almost imagine them just starting to, to comprehend a little bit more about how God loves them, right? The commitment that he has to them. And so after Segula would come step three, and that was the, the mikvah. Everybody say mikvah. Mikvah, all right? And this one is a little less romantic than the first two. Mikvah means go wash. <laughs> now, I don't know if it had anything to do with them wandering around the wilderness and getting all dirty and dusty and everything. But how many of you know when you're with the person you love, if you're taking this thing to the next level, and like let's say you're taking her out and it's moving towards marriage, you want them to smell nice, Right? You can almost imagine these same girls again talking, girl, you stinky. <laughs> you gotta need a scrub. <laughs> Go get a wash, you know. But it's actually coming from God because as God is moving them into these places, he understands that, that there's a, a washing that needs to take place, right? So in Exodus again, 19, just a few verses later, he says this in verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Everybody say, third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. The, the mikvah was a three-day warning, if you will, that the engagement was coming. And so when you went from Lakah, right, and then you went to the Segula, things are moving ahead. When it got to Mikvah, it was like the girl knew that he was going to propose in three days. And so, of course, ladies, if you knew that a man was going to propose, you'd take a shower, <laughs> right? You'd put some perfume on. And you, you see this in Scripture actually taken to the nth degree in Esther, the book of Esther, when she's getting ready to meet the king. She actually bathed in perfume for one year before she met the king. Now, how many of you know she probably was really smelling good by the end of that year, right? <laughs> like maybe too much. I don't know. But, you know, that's, that's an overkill a little bit. But we find, he says, when it gets to mikvah, it's three days of washing in preparation for betrothal, for the engagement to come. And so you can just imagine a sense of excitement happening. And then, and then after the three days, it would come to step four, which was the ketubah. The ketubah, say that with me, ketubah. The ketubah is 
a marriage contract. Okay? Now we've really moved things along, right? We're getting to the ketubah, the marriage contract. So three days later, Moses comes down from the mountains with the two tablets, right? So this is Scripture. He comes down three days afterwards. Like he told him to wash. He's gone through this whole thing. Now he gets to the ketubah, and the ketubah is a marriage contract. And he comes down off the mountain. He's got two slabs with the Ten Commandments on it, and he presents them to the people in Exodus 20. If you want to read more there, you can do that. The Israelites actually called the Ten Commandments, are you ready for this? A ten-word ketubah. Right? And it's interesting because, you know, sometimes we look, and again, if you have a twisted picture of God and how much he loves us, sometimes people look at the Ten Commandments as law, right? And very legal and very almost condemning. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But this morning, I want you to change your lenses with me a little bit. Because I want you to begin to look at the Ten Commandments as a marriage contract instead of a book of law. Like again, instead of God being this cosmic killjoy who's trying to take away all your fun, when he comes down with the Ten Commandments, now again, he's walked them through, you know, Laka and all these different steps up to, up to the Ketubah, and he comes off the mountain and he says, listen, I've got this Ketubah right here. And it's not legalistic and law and, and judgmental. It's actually a marriage contract. So with those eyes, walk through a couple of these. In fact, uh, the Shane Willard, he says this. He says, the Ten Commandments, sorry, the Ten Commandments are not ten conditions. They're not ten conditions to get God to love you. They are ten proofs that he already does. I mean, sometimes don't we just need to change our lenses and how we see God? So, Ten Commandments through the eyes of a marriage proposal, right? Ten Commandments. What, what's the first one? He says, have no other gods before me, right? No other gods before me. Now, if you're thinking in terms of marriage, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> so let's say I'm going to, you know, want to be with Jody and I want her to marry me. And this, you know, we're going to move into marriage. I don't want, I just want her, right? And God is saying, listen, it's just you and me. I don't want any other gods. I don't want any, you know, don't keep any pictures of your old boyfriends in your wallet. You know, don't keep any pictures of your old girlfriends in your wallet. It's just you and me. No other gods before me. <laughs> there was a, there's a video I found. I want to just show this to you. And uh, it's entitled, Emma, Would you ever marry these past seven months like this? have been incredible. And, I mean, honestly... When I saw you seven months ago, I knew, I knew from that moment that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with you. You're kind, beautiful, smart. I, I can't picture a more perfect woman. So, Emma, Lily, Thompson, will you marry me? Yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> I have to see other guys on the side, but yes. Wait, what? Uh, what are the guys? What, what are you talking about? I'm the perfect woman. Just like you said, I'm going to have gourmet meals for us every single night. Our house is going to be perfect. Oh, it's going to be amazing, babe. And I mean, you don't really expect me to be a one-man kind of woman anyway. Uh, no, that's actually like a, a, a big part of marriage. Like, you and me. Together. Yeah, 
but I can't give up every guy. I mean, that's asking a little much, don't you think? A, a little... A little... I just asked you to marry me. If we're married, you can't see no one else. That, that, no, that... That's Thanks, wait. Okay, I'm, okay I'm shh. It's okay. Listen to me. Listen to me. Look at me. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. You're right. I was wrong. Thank I you. totally understand where you're coming from. This is our moment. And we're going to be so happy together. Every single day. Except once a week. Well, uh, once a week? Okay. What, just no. a fling, once a week. Did you, did you not listen to anything Every other I just year? said? No. On a what? leap year? No. Okay, okay. Emma, I, I, I can't. I, I can't. Once a week on a leap year and you're going to freak out? Emma, we're, we're done. What? Babe, you were just asking me to marry you. Are you kidding me? Seriously? <laughs> All right. <laughs> No other gods, right? I mean, how ridiculous is that scenario, right? And yet God says to us, listen, if we're going to be married, if we're going to do this ketubah, it's just you and me, right? Then he goes on, and, he, and the other come in. The next, don't have idols, right? Like he said, don't, don't have other gods, but also don't have idols. How many of you know that things can, <laughs> you know, like when I, got, when I uh, was starting to date Jody and I knew we were moving into ketubah time, you know, I knew that, you know, I just threw away all these pictures of old girlfriends, right? Why? Because I didn't want any other idols. I didn't want any other things in our relationship. And how many of you found that to be true? Like, when you move to Ketubah, then that's it. You're zeroed in. So he says, no other idols. Don't use my name in vain, right? Commandment, don't use my name in vain. Don't sign checks that I wouldn't sign, <laughs> right? Don't put my name on things that I'm not agreeing with, right? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And again, I, I love it. There's nothing to do with law. You must have one day. You know, it's not the law. How many of you know that God is saying, listen, let's just have one day that it's just you and me. Right? Let's reset from, the world, from, from everything around us one day a week, right? And this marriage contract, how many of you know it's pretty smart for husbands and wives to say no to some things and yes to each other and for one day a week? That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Just you and me. Let's be married. Let's just be with each other. And I believe God is saying that so that we can have our best life together. How many of you found that when you come to church on Sunday and you set one day aside just for God and worship and connecting with Him, it actually does something really powerful in your spirit, right? Yeah, you guys are here. You know what I'm talking about, right? So this ketubah was a marriage contract. We don't have time to go through all of them, but... The ketubah was a marriage contract, and it defined the marriage. Now, this is what would happen. The men, the man and the woman would come together, and with their fathers, they would also be, and let's say they would come together at a table, they would sit down, and the man and the woman would basically write their, their contract with each other, their, their, their things that they wanted to be a part of their marriage, what they wanted their, their relationship to be about, right? And so they would come to an agreement on what that was going to look like for them. It's pretty healthy, right? And then the fathers would also be witnesses, and so they would sign this thing. And at some point, when that was all done, the bridegroom would stand up, and the, and the bride-to-be would, would stand up, and they would face each other, and the bridegroom would say this, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be with me also. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> And the bride-to-be would look back at him, and she would say, When will you come back to receive me unto yourself? And the bridegroom would then say, 
I do not know the day or the hour, but when my father approves of the wedding chamber, he will send me back to receive you unto myself. (laughs) So again, we're jumping from Exodus all the way back up to the New Testament in John. Of course, many of you recognize the words of Jesus. And he's speaking to his disciples and he says this, And if I go, in John 14, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. And so what would happen was, after they signed the the ketubah contract, the husband would go and prepare the wedding chamber. And sometimes this would take a while and all that, but the idea was that he would go and prepare this beautiful place for them, their wedding chamber, uh, that was, you know, again, we don't know all the details, and I'm not Hebrew and all that, but, but how many of you think that if he's going to prepare a place, it's going to be pretty nice, right? He goes and prepares a place. After that's finally done, they come back, and then they would move to the next and final step, and that is the step number five, the hoopa. The hoopa. Everybody say hoopa. Kind of reminds us of another word, but hoopa, right? And the hoopa means this, under the presence of God. Everybody say, under the presence of God. This really gets fun. So there's actually two hoopas in this, in this wedding scenario. So now you've moved through all the phases up to the marriage contract, and now they're going to be married. And the first hoopa was at the altar. Okay? Now, um, some of you remember, uh, uh, some of you have been to Jewish weddings before, right? And if you've ever seen them in the Jewish wedding, there's always like an, uh, a hoop, if you will, a, a, a hoop over the top of them, and it's like a, a, an archway that they decorate in different ways. Uh, some of you remember uh, Ron and, uh, and Rochelle. Some of you were at that wedding, and I, I was actually in that wedding, and I remember them being under this, I didn't know what it was at the time, but it was a hoopah. And a hoopah is an archway, and again, hoopah means under the presence of God. And so they would come under this hoopah with the priest, and part of the ceremony was so cool. The man would come with a bag of salt, and the woman would come with a bag of salt, and the priest would have an empty bag. And they would take the salt, and the man would, would, the woman would pour her salt into the bag, and then the man would pour his salt into the bag, and the priest would take it and, and kind of tie it at the top, and he would shake it up, and he would say this. Maybe this sounds familiar too. He would shake it up, and he would say, what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. It's a cool picture, right? Like that salt is now all together, right? And so they would go through the ceremony under this hoopah, and they would do the vows and all of that. And the second hoopah, though, was actually in the marriage chamber, okay? And so after the, the vows and the ceremony, they would move <laughs> to, the, to the wedding chamber, which was nearby. And uh, some of you know what a, a talit is. Some of you know what a talit is, right? Some of you, it's a, it's a prayer shawl. Have you seen uh, uh, Jewish people or Hebrew people? They have this shawl and it has tassels on it. And, okay, so here's one at a, at a wedding. You see, it's, a, it's called a prayer shawl. It's a tallit. And what they would do is that um, they would go to, the, to the, mer- the, the preparation that the husband would do. He would, there was four stakes on the beds. You know, those four-corner bed kind of thing? One stake at each corner of the bed. And he would take the tallit with tassels, and he would tie it to each of the four corners so that over the top there was this shalit, this prayer shawl, over the top of their marriage bed. And again, 
The hupa means what? Under the presence of God. So we find this tallit, this prayer shawl, this, this hupa over the marriage bed. And so the husband would come and he would bring the, the, the gal to the door. And of course, this is in our culture, similar. He would pick her up at the door and he would walk her over to the bed and put her on the bed and under the, 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 the prayer shawl, under the hupa, then they would, you know, consummate their marriage. All while, all while everyone else is waiting outside the door. Ooh, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, they're a little more free with their sexuality in those days than we were. You know, it just kind of seems weird to us. Yeah, outside, hoopa. You know? <laughs> but anyway, and so they would, you know, they would, they would, uh, they would finish up the marriage right there under the hoopa, of, under his presence. And then they were done. They would come out and they would go have a party. They would actually have the supper and the feast and the, and the amazing, you know, party, if you will, after that. Isn't that something? <laughs> now I want you to jump back to Revelation with me real quick. And it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, and again, we find that it's, Revelation is the conclusion of all things. And so we find that God has actually been wooing us through these different steps all the way up to the hoopah and then beyond to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I don't really, I looked up some pictures of marriage supper of the Lamb. Nobody has any idea what it's going to look like. I'm just thinking there better be tacos. That's all I'm saying. That's a marriage supper of the Lamb. <laughs> Dorito taco shell tacos. That's what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> but we find this massive party in the book of Revelation. And again, in Revelation 19, 7 and 9, let's read it again. It says, Look what the first line says. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. You can imagine now with that picture of, you know, the different five steps and then the, the consummating of the marriage under the presence of God. And then they come out and they have this marriage supper. They have this great feast and this great celebration. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. That doesn't mean acts of earning God's favor. That means when we invite Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, it says that we exchange our filthy rags for his perfection. When those talking about fine linen and perfection there in holiness, we're talking about people that have said yes to Jesus being in control of their life, and they're putting on his righteous robes, and no longer are they dirty or blame, you know, filled with all the guilt and shame. The Bible says they're blameless, right? Whew. And then verse 9 says, Then he said to me, right, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I want you to stand with me this morning and as we close. Don't you love that God allows us to understand him a little bit more every day? And I, if you would just close your eyes with me for a moment, I, I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to come. Maybe, maybe you're here today and, and you have never walked into this marriage covenant with God. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never, you've never said yes to exchanging your 
dirty clothes for his perfect clothes. And this morning, I just want to give you opportunity. If you're here today and you would say, you know, this Jesus that you're talking about, this love relationship with God that you're talking about, I want in on that. I want in on that. And if, if that's you today, I just want you to lift your hand. I want to pray for you. Nobody looking around. But this, I want in on that. I want my life to be filled with his love. I want my life to be completely pure and holy in him. Huh. Maybe you're here this morning and, and uh, you got stuck on one of these phases of this relationship with God. Maybe you're still in the dating phase. Maybe... Maybe you're in, the, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a phase that isn't, that you've gotten stuck with how much God loves you. And this morning you feel like God is actually bringing you into a deeper place. And you would just lift your hand and say, Lord, I'm ready to move into deeper areas of your love, into, into moving past Laka and Segula and some of these other places. I want to move into the Kataba and I want to move into the, 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 the under your presence part of your love. You just lift your hands and say, Lord, I, I want to move into deeper places with you. I want to take the next step and move forward in, my, in your love for me and in my love for you. So, Lord, I thank you today for all these hands that are raised, all these hungry hearts, God. Lord, that it's not enough just to, just to know about you or to have a lacaw relationship where we know you love us, but we're not really into the deeper parts of this thing. So, Lord, I just pray this morning that we would move into the deeper places of your love. That this morning, oh God, we would move into that, that place of celebration and rejoicing in you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord. Now, this morning, we're just going to end with a, with a song. And I want to just open up the altars for you this morning, this place of, uh, <laughs> we call it the altar. It's just steps, of course. But it's a place where we, we move to and we say, God, I want you to do something in my heart and in my life and in my mind that I haven't experienced before. I want to progress in you today. I want to move into deeper places. And so just as the song is sung today, I encourage you to find a place of commitment and a place of, of, of hunger and let God speak to you his love today. And if you want to come and find a place of prayer, we will invite you to do that. I seek you.